All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 18. The Calder Connection, Alexander Milne Calder, Alexander Sterling Calder, the Warner Family, and Henry Charles Lee. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kenwood, was founded in 1869 and it has a history and population of its own. Join me for the next 50 minutes or so to learn about some interesting folks interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. They have some pretty amazing stories. Alexander Milne Calder was a Scottish-born sculptor who came to Philadelphia and found all the work he could handle when he was given the commission for statuary for the City Hall. 20 years and 250 statues later, he still had more art in him. He managed to squeeze in a monument for the Warner family at Laurel Hill Cemetery that is probably the most photographed gravesite on the property. His son, Alexander Sterling Calder, is best remembered for Swan Fountain on Logan Circle. But he was also commissioned to do the statue for the grave of famed historian Henry Charles Lee, also at Laurel Hill Cemetery. The Calders are interred at West Laurel Hill under a large Celtic cross. I'm Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University and very amateur historian. Learn about all these people today and more on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, The Calder Connection. If you're from Philadelphia and you're like me, well, let's face it, we tend to take public statues for granted. After all, the father of American sculpture, William Rush, 1756 to 1833, left his works all over the city. When you walk the city, there seems to be a statue on every corner, everything from a giant clothespin to a billy goat. Even if you're strolling along the Schuylkill River, you might encounter St. George slaying a dragon or General Ulysses S. Grant astride a horse. You can't even escape statues when you walk through the woods next to Wissahickon Creek. Look up and you'll see a kneeling Lenape warrior or a Quaker named simply Toleration. A bigger Quaker, the biggest of all in fact, William Penn, stands atop a building we probably take for granted, Philadelphia City Hall. It was built over a 30-year period from 1871 to 1901. It is still the largest and the tallest masonry building in the world. It's seven complete floors 
and two partial floors, along with the basement and sub-basement, contain 695 rooms with about 14 and a half acres of floor space. Hundreds of thousands of cubic feet of granite, marble, slate, and dressed sandstone were used, along with more than 88 million handmade bricks. Its style is French Second Empire, which was extremely popular at the time the building was started, but it was considered old-fashioned 30 years later. So City Hall was an architectural throwback from the day that it opened. Also, when construction started, indoor lighting was provided by gas. But by 1891, more than 10,000 electric lights were installed after five years of chiseling the walls in order to retrofit electric wires and fixtures. The tower on the north side, where Penn resides, has a stairwell with 605 steps uh, from the seventh floor. The tower elevator was one of the last things added to the building in 1901. Billy Penn's statue is 37 feet tall. He weighs 27 tons of hollow bronze. He is constructed of 14 pieces. His hat has a circumference of 23 feet. There's a maintenance access tunnel through the statue that leads to a 22 inch hatch at the top of the hat, 548 feet above street level. The brim is about two feet wide, enough space for a daredevil to ride a bicycle around if they could ever fit it through the hatch. Once someone stood on the hat to raise money for World War I veterans. In December 1980, a city worker dressed in a gorilla suit and stood on the brim of Penn's hat to promote the Philadelphia Zoo and the 50th birthday of Massa, the world's oldest captive gorilla. There are dozens of trivia questions you can ask about City Hall. Cost, size, hidden passages. Here's one that almost everyone would get wrong. Who was City Hall's first occupant? Most students of Philadelphia history will confidently say, oh, Mayor Edwin Fittler. He was mayor from 1887 to 1891. He's the namesake for Fittler Square, by the way, and he has the tallest obelisk at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section K. But its first occupant was not in an office. He was in the basement. It was Alexander Milna Calder, 1846 to 1923, who started working on statues and decorations for the building on site in 1873, and he kept working on them on site for the next 20 years. Despite a short-sighted attempt to tear down City Hall in the 1950s, it was determined that the cost of its demolition would bankrupt the city. This remains one of the great buildings of the United States, and its 250-plus statues all came from the same hands, those of Scottish immigrant Alexander Milna Calder. Calder was one of the three men primarily responsible for what we see today. Samuel C. Perkins, 1828 to 1903, he's in Laurel Hill, Section L, was president of the commissioners for the erection of public buildings for 28 years. John MacArthur, Jr., 1823 to 1890, he's in Laurel Hill, Section 7, was the Scottish-born architect appointed by Perkins in 1871. 
Perkins was rewarded by his choices of MacArthur and Calder early in 1874 when a sculpture of eight cats chasing a mouse appeared at the south entrance vestibule. Perkins was apparently a cat lover. You can still see it there today. The original plan called for a statue of justice to top the north entrance tower. The rest of the sculptures were not part of the original plan. They just sort of happened. With the ideas coming from MacArthur, the plaster models coming from Calder, and the final decorations coming from marble carvers William Struthers and Sons. Uh, William Struthers Sr., 1814 to 1876, and William Struthers Jr., 1848 to 1911, are both in Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section L. The other son, John Struthers, is buried in Bryn Mawr. Calder had started working in stone as a youth in Scotland under John Rind, R-H-I-N-D, who was the father of John Massey Rind, a sculptor of the figure of John Wanamaker on the east side of City Hall. For three years, Calder worked in Edinburgh at the Royal Academy, but he also visited Paris in 1867, probably attracted by the International Exposition and the new Louvre Museum. In 1868, Calder immigrated to Philadelphia with one introduction to stonemason William Struthers and another introduction to the most noted sculptor in the city, Joseph Alexis Bailey, a Frenchman by origin who has three magnificent statues at Laurel Hill Cemetery, the William Evelyn Cresson Memorial, the William F. Hughes Memorial, and the General Francis E. Patterson Memorial as well as most of the internal ornament for the Academy of Music at Broad and Locust. Now, interestingly, Calder was not hired to do the actual stonework. All records between 1873 and 1893 show that he was paid to make plaster models. And he didn't even do that. He modeled in clay, then handed them over to assistants to transfer his ideas to plaster. For his 20 years of work, Calder was paid a total of $82,475.66. That's about $4,124 a year. But he had to pay his assistants from that salary. James G.C. Hamilton and John Cassani were the actual plaster workers, and Struther and Sons did the stone carving. Two of Calder's sons, Alexander Sterling and Charles, also assisted him in his studio. Calder churned out statue after statue after statue. Eagles and buffalo heads, Native Americans and Swedes, laborers and Quakers. He kept in mind that the new building was going to be the seat of all three branches of government. The south entrance led to the judicial branch or law courts and at that time the state supreme court. So the sculptures there are of Moses, law and liberty, and the seal for the Commonwealth. The other entrances have the seal for the city of Philadelphia. On the west side, prison vans originally entered City Hall under a keystone with the face of sympathy. Other statues represent prayer, meditation, repentance. The east side was entrance to the executive branch, the mayor's office. There you encounter the face of Benjamin Franklin, along with statues representing industry and peace, arts and sciences. And the northern entrance was to the legislative branch, city council. 
There you find William Penn's face on the keystone, a pioneer with an axe in his hand facing a rather nervous Native American, and other statues representing liberty and history, fame and victory. But the crowning glory, both literally and figuratively, is William Penn, which took Calder two and a half years to mold. By September 1886, he had completed a quarter-sized clay model of nine feet, which was then converted to plaster over the next two months. Laboriously over the next two years, the full-sized clay and then plaster models were completed, with the head being lowered into place in August 1888. And there it sat for another year, waiting for industry to catch up with art. There was no foundry in the United States that was capable of casting a 37-foot-high statue. But in September 1889, Tacony Iron and Metal Works of Philadelphia was awarded the contract for Penn and the other sculptural figures on the clock tower. Tacony, of course, was the factory town that had been established by Henry Diston, 1819-1878. He's at Laurel Hill Cemetery, uh, right by the bridge, in the bridge section. He established it for his massive saw factory, so it became a major section of the city for metalworking. Now, astonishingly, while Alexander Milne Calder was designing and sculpting these 250 statues and sculptural ornaments for City Hall, he took a few side jobs. After the death of the hero of Gettysburg, George Gordon Meade, 1815 to 1872, he, of course, was at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section L. A committee was formed to find a sculptor for an equestrian statue of the great man. It sputtered along for several years until in 1880, when circulars launching the design competition went out to 34 American sculptors, 14 of them expatriates, immigrants. And on 19 October 1881, the winning design was chosen. It was from Alexander Milne Calder, a personal friend of Meade's. Second place was won by his old mentor, Joseph Alexis Bailey. Calder had been studying at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts with master painter William Eakins and wanted to put his newfound skills to work. The job would pay $25,000. That's as much as he made in five years at City Hall. The three-and-a-half-ton, ten-and-a-half-foot bronze on a 12-foot granite base of Meade and his favorite horse, Old Baldy, was completed in 1887. It still stands just north of Memorial Hall in West Fairmount Park, facing the Schuylkill River. People often wonder why he's not at City Hall near his compatriots John Reynolds and George McClellan. It was the family's desire to place him in the park. Another commission taken by Calder during this time was the Werner family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. I will talk about that in the next segment of the podcast. In 1894, William Penn was lifted piece by piece to his permanent spot on top of City Hall. Calder claims that he watched in horror as his masterwork was faced toward the northeast. His intent was for the statue to face south, so its face would spend most of the day in the sun. The architect stated that the plan had always been for Penn to face toward Penn Treaty Park where he had made peace with the local Indian tribes, thus founding the city. In this current position, 
Penn's face is in the sun only briefly in the morning, usually before crowds have come to Center City. Now, some residents of Taconi believe to this day that the final reckoning was determined by the workmen who put the statue in place so it could face its place of birth, the foundry in Taconi. And by the way, that photo that you've probably seen dozens of times of a man in a hat sitting next to Penn's head in the City Hall courtyard, that is not Alexander Melna Calder. It's an iron worker named Fred Ulberg. He was a Danish immigrant. Despite decades of assimilation into American culture, Calder remained a Scotsman at heart. He was a bit of a dandy. He wore his hat at a jaunty angle. His suits were homespun tweed, and they smelled of peat, and he had a constantly lit pipe in his mouth. After finishing his massive work at City Hall, Calder's style fell out of favor. His commissions were few and far between. One of his sons, Walter, committed suicide in 1899. But another son, Alexander Sterling Calder, took up where his father left off and became another prominent sculptor in the history of Philadelphia. Milna and Sterling had frequent arguments about the meaning of art. The elder believed that an artist should produce a likeness. The younger, that an artist should interpret character. Often the arguments would end with the elder Calder proclaiming, I hate me dudes. More about Sterling in part three of today's podcast. Alexander Milna Calder died at his home at 1321 South Broad Street in June 1923. He was 77 years old. He was survived by five sons. His wife had died several years before. He was buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery under an impressive Celtic cross he had brought back with him on one of his trips to Scotland in 1905. Get up close. You will see that it is crawling with serpents. And don't bother looking for the name Calder at the base. Remaining a true Scotsman to the end, his gravestone retains the original spelling of his family name, Cawdor. Alexander Milna Calder, sculptor for City Hall. I think there's no doubt that the Werner family plot is the most photographed in Laurel Hill Cemetery. It's also probably most effective to approach it from the south at the end of a tour as you head back to the gatehouse. As you get near, you know something monumental is about to happen. There's a larger-than-life woman wearing an off-shoulder toga. Is she an angel? Well, there are no wings. And she has no arms. Sometime in the past, they were the victims of vandals. She has an attractive but firm expression on her face and long straight hair. She's beckoning toward a coffin on a catafalque with her shortened right arm, while her truncated left arm seems to be simultaneously lifting the coffin lid and pointing heavenward. Was there a finger pointing at one time? Wait, there's something rising from the coffin. Good heavens, it's, it's a human face. It's surrounded by wings or, or feathers or are they flames? Maybe solid air. Its eyes are closed in peaceful repose, either sleep or death. It's a spirit. But the expression on the woman's face is somehow comforting. Is she raising him from the dead? Is she sending him onward to heaven? Some internet analysts have interpreted her as the angel of death, but there is no indication she's an angel. 
We know the face from the coffin is a man. There's a large stylized W on the head of the coffin and an inscription, William, son of William and Anna Catherine Warner, died January 20th, 1889, carved below on the catafalque. His nose has been smashed and is partially missing. Now, since the entire carving is from hewn granite rather than marble, we know that this too is the result of violent human mischief. Now walk around back to the foot of the coffin. Go ahead, the Warner family is used to it. Look down at the base of the catafalque and you'll see a name carved, Calder. This is one of Alexander Milna Calder's best known works. There's a similar oversized carving just a few feet away, also of a woman standing next to a closed coffin. It is apparently just 10 years older since the date carved in that catafalque is 1879. We know from the archives and the inscription at the end that this is the resting place of Harriet Warner, William Warner Jr.'s younger sister. She died in February 1879 at age 54 or 55. But this one is marble and it is melting. In the decade between the two burials, steam-powered tools had improved to be used in carving harder stone like granite. The lot was purchased on 23 April 1879. 588 square feet at $2.66 per square foot. That's a total of $1,568 for both lots J74 and J76. The purchaser also spent $49 for a permanent maintenance fund. William Warner Sr., 1780 to 1855, his first wife Mary, 1782 to 1809, and second wife Anna Catherine, 1783 to 1830, were moved to the new plot on the 1st of October, 1879. They had initially been buried in Section O. When two other Warner children died, Catherine Anna in 1903, age unknown, and George W. in 1908, age 90, they too were interred in the family plot. Now distract yourself from the spirits by Calder and look at the slightly smaller carvings for Anna and George. Each has an elaborate sarcophagus about five feet high. The upper portion of each is also in the form of a casket, heavily draped with lion's heads cut in high relief on either side. Acanthus or bear's breeches are carved at the four corners and terminate in lion's feet resting on the plinth, which is ornamented with wreaths and ribbons and has a bunch of lilies carved on the wash. Catherine's catafalque has a biblical verse, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's from Matthew 5.8. We know maddeningly little about the Warners. Their family history reaches deep back into colonial times. We think their branch comes from Joseph Warner, born in 1742. In 1794, his sons John and William Warner established a partnership to operate a sailing packet service on the Delaware River with offices in Wilmington and Philadelphia. Laurel Hill's William Warner was born in 1780, so if this is him, he would have been 14 years old. There are long gaps in the record. 
1883, an article in the Wilmington Morning News told of the formation of the Charles Warner Company. But that was because of a dissolving partnership between E. Tatnall Warner and Alfred D. Warner. William Jr. and George would have been in their mid-60s, so it is possible that Charles was the son of one of them. But I couldn't find anything with some more research. I actually spent about 10 or 12 hours online trying to research this family. Now, this Charles Warner Company was a leading dealer in coal, cement, and building sand. Another source says they began shipping anthracite coal from the Schuylkill region in the 1820s and became a major importer of Portland cement. Portland cement is named for the Isle of Portland in Dorset, England, where the Portland stone was quarried. And they started doing that as early as 1865. When Charles Warner died in 1891 as the result of a fall from a stagecoach, there's a detailed history of the company and his obituary that mentions none of the people who are buried at Laurel Hill. It is all very confusing. Also, a lot of online research is wrong. Several online resources incorrectly claim the Calder sculpture is for William Warner Sr., whereas the tomb clearly states that Junior is buried there. Others say that it's a child arising from the coffin. We do know the family lived at 1500 Arch Street. That doesn't help much. Now that's part of JFK Plaza. We know that the stone carving from Calder's model was done by John M. Gessler's sons at 39th and Woodlawn. And the stone they used is imported from Rhode Island. It's blue westerly granite. William Warner Sr.'s obituary in the Philadelphia Public Ledger on 8 October 1855 gives a little four terse lines. The relatives and friends of the family are respectfully invited to attend the funeral from his late residence, number 100 Franklin Street, below Callow Hill. We know that he listed himself as a gentleman in his will. He left a fortune of $59,000 to church-related charities and institutions. I could find no obituary for Harriet or for William Jr., the spirit rising. Catherine, who never married, had a reading of her will published on 18 July 1903, saying that she died in Atlantic City on July 3rd and left an estate of $80,000 to various charities, most of them associated with the Lutheran Church. Also, the home of the Merciful Savior for Crippled Children, Howard Hospital and Infirmary for Incurables, and others. George Warner's death notice was as brisk and brief as his father's. For people with a lot of money and excellent taste in funerary symbolism, they have remained somewhat of a mystery. What don't we know? Who ordered the monument? We know it wasn't William Sr. Who designed it? Calder? A family member? Or someone else? Maybe it was one of the 300 or so spiritualists practicing in Philadelphia at that time. How in the world did they get Alexander Milna Calder, who was in the middle of designing and modeling 250 statues for Philadelphia City Hall, to take enough time to create this amazing sculpture? What scale were his clay or plaster models, and what happened to them? How much did Calder get paid for it? I have sent two queries to the Calder Foundation in New York City. They have gone unanswered. Oh, and what happened to the amputated arms? Well, that we have an idea about. 
In the August 2019 edition of News and Events from Laurel Hill Cemetery, there's an article that says, quote, Several weeks ago, Laurel Hill was contacted by a man who said he had a stone hand to return to the cemetery. He said a friend of his had picked up the hand while in the cemetery in the 1980s and had it on display in his home until his recent passing. He wanted to see it return to us. It's not every day you get a hand in the mail. We opened it, not knowing what statue it belonged to or if we would ever know. Some statues are so high off the ground, it's very hard to reach them. The day after receiving the package, Archives and Volunteer Coordinator Beth Savastana and Volunteer John McDonald were joking. Wouldn't it be amazing if this was one of the Warner's arms? John took the two pieces to the site, and it was a perfect fit. The arm and hand, minus the pointing finger of Alexander Milna Calder's statue, has returned to Laurel Hill Cemetery after more than 30 years. Monument Preservation Specialist and Friend of Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Thomas Gavigan, will adhere and secure the arm back into place. But a question remains, where is the other arm? The Warner plot is a high point of almost every tour of Laurel Hill Cemetery. But there are as many mysteries about the family and the plot and the sculptor as there are answers. Alexander Sterling Calder used to tell people that, quote, my father and mother met over a cadaver. It's true, they first met in W.W. Keene's artistic anatomy class at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. What he didn't tell people was that his mother, Margaret Sterling Calder, 1842 to 1912, a strict Scotch Presbyterian, said that all five of her pregnancies were a result of rape, and only two of her sons ever married, or that his younger brother Walter Douglas Calder, 1875 to 1899, committed suicide by drinking carbolic acid in Fairmount Park. Yet Sterling Calder turned into one of the go-to sculptors in the first half of the 20th century in America, and especially in Philadelphia. Alexander Sterling Calder was born in Philadelphia and educated in city public schools while living at the family home on Bainbridge Street. He enrolled at PAFA at age 15 in 1885, where he studied under, of course, Thomas Eakins. His first trip to Paris was when he was 19. He went back the next year to study under Henri-Michel Chaput, a neoclassical sculptor known for the use of allegory in his work. Chaput is probably best known in the United States for his 1870 sculpture of Joan of Arc, since there are reproductions of it at four different universities in Virginia. Sterling also studied under Alexandre Folger before returning to Philadelphia in 1892. Within three years, Sterling had been awarded a commission through a national competition to sculpt a larger-than-life likeness of surgeon Dr. Samuel D. Gross, 1805-1884. It was for the National Mall. Sterling used a lot of photos which Eakins had taken for his painting, The Gross Clinic. 
so the representations of the statue and the painting are very similar. You can see the statue now on the campus of Thomas Jefferson University in Center City, where it's been since 1970. In February of 1895, he married portrait painter Nanette a Letterer, 1866 to 1960. They got married in front of the mantle in his parents' house. They had two children, Margaret, 1896 to 1988, who married Kenneth Arond Hayes and lived in California, but she wrote an informative book called Three Alexander Calders, a family memoir, which was published in 1977. The youngest child, Alexander Sandy Calder, 1898 to 1976, became one of the best-known sculptors in the world and inventor of the mobile. And the commissions started coming in. In 1898, Sterling contributed a bust of Major General John Frederick Hartranft to the Civil War Monument in Fairmount Park. He finished it quickly, and it became the standard to determine the size of the other pieces. From 1898 to 1899, he sculpted the figures of 12 Presbyterian divines outside the seventh floor of the Witherspoon Building at Walnut and Juniper. When the Presbyterian Historical Society moved to 425 Lombard in 1967, six of the statues went with it and are now at ground level. The Witherspoon Building was designed by Joseph R. Houston, who also designed the state capitol at Harrisburg in 1901, but who went to jail several years later for graft. His home, Oaks Cloister in Germantown, is considered one of the finest in the city. Sterling sculpted the drinking fountain at the Quadrangle Dormitories for the University of Pennsylvania in 1900. It was donated by the class of 1892. He did the sundial at Fairmount Park Horticultural Center. It took him from 1903 to 1905. And he won a silver medal for his works at the 1904 St. Louis Exposition. In 1911, he sculpted the seated Cleo, goddess of history, for the grave of historian Henry Charles Lee at Laurel Hill Cemetery. More about her in part four of the podcast. Tragically, his massive works for the 1913-1915 Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco, the Nations of the West, the Nations of the East, and Fountain of Energy, were destroyed at the end of the exposition. But you can see the last dryad from 1921 at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. His Shakespeare Memorial from 1923 to 26 is in front of the Free Library at Logan Square, and a late work, Bishop William White from 1940, is at the Washington Memorial Chapel in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. That was his last major commission. Dozens of other Sterling Calder statues are scattered from California to Iceland. But when Philadelphians think of Sterling, their memories go to Logan Circle and his masterpiece, Swan Memorial Fountain. It was created from 1920 to 24. It is the middle portion of what's called the Calder Trinity, all of whom are visible from a not-so-secret spot I'm going to share with you. Normally, you would go up the rocky steps at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and use the front entrance. The day that I am recording this, it's been announced that when the Philadelphia Museum of Art reopens in September, the north entrance only will be used. So you have to head to the main hall on your own. 
and then walk about halfway up those stairs towards the Saint Gaudens statue of Diana the Huntress. Now turn around, look out the front windows of the museum, all the way down the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. You can see William Penn by Alexander Milne Calder atop City Hall. Adjust your eyes down a little bit, and there's the Swan Fountain by his son, Alexander Sterling Calder. Now, look up at the Grand Hallway ceiling. There's a massive mobile hanging there. It is by Alexander Sandy Calder, the third member of the Trinity. After seeing works by the Father and the Son, it is only appropriate that this sculpture is named Ghost. There is some evidence that this mobile was originally designed for a church in Cincinnati with the name Holy Ghost. The proper name of what we all call the Swan Fountain is the Fountain of Rivers. Dr. Wilson Carey Swan, 1806 to 1876, he's buried at Christ Church Burial Ground. He's described as a, quote, bland, courteous, compliant Virginia gentleman devoted to benevolent causes, end quote. Swan was founder and president of the Fountain Society in those horsepowered days. By the turn of the century, there were more than 50 ornamental fountains scattered around the city. They were intended to slake the thirst of man and beast alike. Swan's wife, Maria Elizabeth Swan, 1814 to 1891, wrote her will in 1878 declaring, quote, I give the sum of $50,000 to the Philadelphia Fountain Society in trust to erect in some suitable locality a large and handsome fountain in memory of my beloved husband, end quote. It turns out her bequest wasn't as large as people initially thought and the money was invested to grow. 43 years later, Sterling sought authorization to start work. Now, after much discussion, Logan Circle at Logan Square was determined to be the right place for the fountain. Architect Wilson Eyre, 1858 to 1944, buried at Woodland Cemetery, hired Sterling to do illustrations on speculation while the final details were hammered out. The pool for the fountain, consisting of a 124-foot basin, low-curbed and unadorned, was finished on November 11, 1920. Air wanted the statues to have a low profile so as not to interrupt the line of sight from City Hall to the Art Museum. He requested horizontal continuity with interlacings of curved jets and sprays of water. Calder said, quote, I called the group in Logan Square, the Fountain of Three Rivers. It was my fancy to imagine the three great decorative bronze figures as the rivers enclosing the city of Philadelphia. The Delaware, represented by the male Indian, the Schuylkill, or Gentle River, south of this, and the Wissahickon, or Hidden Creek, to the west." End quote. Wissahickon was completed first in the spring of 1923. It is Calder's Lida, sliding against the back of a water-spouting swan. It is also the most sexualized of the three figures, a nubile woman with a languid pose, lips partially open, and erect nipples. Delaware was next, cast in the fall of 1923. The muscular male leans calmly against a leaping fish and holds his bow. As the Lenape Confederation of the Algonquin were called the Delawares from their river, he seems to be a Delaware Indian. Schuylkill, the third river, 
is represented by a mature woman. She grasps the neck of another swan. This one is off balance with ruffled feathers. The entire ensemble is highlighted by spouting turtles and frogs on the periphery. Without ceremony on 23 July 1924, the eve of the hottest day of the year. While the rest of the United States was awaiting the sentencing in the Leopold Loeb murder of Bobby Franks in Chicago, and six boxcar loads of illicit beer were seized at the Philadelphia and Reading Railway freight yards, the fence was removed from around the completed fountain. The next evening, there were 10,000 sweltering people tango dancing in the street around it to the music of the police band. But Calder and Air were nowhere to be seen. And there was only a very small photo of the partially complete fountain on the bottom of page 14 of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Everyone in Philadelphia knows that it is illegal to wade or bathe in the fountain. But everyone also knows that the law is seldom enforced. Years ago, when I had a dog, we would walk five miles from Balakinwood to Center City and through the courtyard at City Hall. On the way home, I would toss him into the Swan Fountain and wait for a few minutes as he waded around and lapped up water in preparation for our five-mile trek home. Now, recently, there's been controversy about Logan Square and its namesake, James Logan, who was responsible for the infamous walking purchase in 1737. Lenape or Delaware Indians were cheated out of hundreds of thousands of acres of land which they had to vacate. Local descendants of indigenous people feel that the square needs a new name, and Lenape Square has been recommended. So far, I have heard no one insist that the Calder statues be removed. Alexander Sterling Calder lived a respectable 75 years, but may have died for his art. His cause of death is listed as pectus excavatum, or funnel chest syndrome. This is unlikely, as funnel chest is something that people are usually born with. It's more likely that he developed silicosis, an occupational disease of people who work with quartz, sandstone, granite, and onyx. Tuberculosis is a common concomitant condition, and we know that Sterling had to move to California as a treatment for tuberculosis for a few years. The combination leads to a restrictive lung disease, fibrosis, and eventually chest wall deformities, usually barrel chest or pectus carinatum, similar to what is seen in patients with long-time emphysema. It just makes me wonder whether someone unfamiliar with the terms copied the death certificate incorrectly. Sterling died in New York City. He's buried in the family plot at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Ballack-Kenwood. Sandy Calder died in 1976 at age 78. The final resting place of his remains is unknown. Frequently this means that someone was cremated, but either the ashes are in private hands or they're lost or misplaced. I have emailed the Calder Foundation twice about this and other details but have received no response. I think it is safe to say that an evolution in sculpture occurred in one family. Alexander Milne Calder's works say, please don't touch my stuff. Alexander Sterling Calder say, sure, you can touch my stuff. And Sandy Calder say, you have to touch my stuff. They are indeed the trinity of Philadelphia sculptors.
Henry Charles Lee is remembered today primarily for three things. First, he was the co-owner of Blanchard and Lee Publishers when they printed the first American edition of the classic Grey's Anatomy in 1862. Second, he researched, wrote, and published the groundbreaking History of the Inquisition in Spain, which has not yet been superseded more than 100 years after its publication. And third, he has one of the most eye-catching gravesites at Laurel Hill Cemetery with a sculpture by Alexander Sterling Calder. Lee's family had made a name for itself as publishers. His father, Isaac Lee, 1792 to 1886, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 9, was born a Quaker, but he fought in the War of 1812 with the 24th Pennsylvania Militia. In 1821, he married Frances Ann Carey, 1799-1873. She was a botanist and daughter of Irish-American publisher Matthew Carey, 1760-1839. Matthew Carey had published the first Roman Catholic Bible in the United States, along with its first atlases, including an 1802 map of Washington, D.C., that was the first to name the stretch of land west of the United States Capitol as the Mall. When Matthew retired in 1825, he left the business in the hands of his son-in-law, Isaac, and his son, Henry Charles Carey. Isaac Lee devoted his leisure time to the study of freshwater and land mollusks, becoming a world expert conchologist. His massive collection is housed at the National Museum in Washington. In an 1829 letter to Lee, Edgar Allan Poe included a four-line poem which was accredited to him as simply to Isaac Lee. It was my choice or chance or curse to adopt the cause for better or worse, and with my worldly goods and wit and soul and body worship it. This verse is actually lifted almost word for word from the 17th century epic poem Hudibras, a narrative that Poe apparently knew very well. Isaac's oldest son, Matthew Carey Lee, 1823-1897, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section S, went by Carey. After being tutored at home, he studied law, but practiced only a few years. He dedicated most of his life to chemistry, especially the chemistry of photography, and he published more than 300 articles in the British Journal of Photography. He had a complete chemistry laboratory in his Chestnut Hill home. His photochemical invention, Kerry Lee Silver, is still in use today. He is also considered the father of mechanochemistry. I will cover him in a future podcast on photographers of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill. Henry Charles Lee was born in 1825 and named for his uncle. Henry and Carrie never went to school, but they were rigorously tutored together and established their study and writing habits early. Between 1841 and 47, he's in his late teens, his early 20s, Henry published more than a dozen articles on practical chemistry, botany, geology, and conchology. He started collecting books early, not just works on the natural sciences, but literature and poetry, along with the history of philosophy, and all, of course, in the original languages. Between 1843 and 1846, 
Lee published several dozen articles on various literary subjects, including an unpublished volume of poetry, which he wrote under the pen name H. Carter Layton. His activities caught up with him in 1847, and he had a breakdown at age 22. His physician ordered him to stop scientific research and to do no writing for 10 years. Lee did this reluctantly. Now, he did take time to catalog his library, such as it was in 1849, and then he married his first cousin, Anna Caroline Jowden, 1824 to 1912, in 1850. By 1851, he became a partner in the publishing firm, now known as Blanchard and Lee. In 1852, his brother Carrie married Anna's sister, Elizabeth Jowden, 1827-1881. He may have been forbidden to write, but he could read and he could think. He began to buy memoirs of court life in 17th and 18th century France and acquired everything he could going earlier and earlier. He read them chronologically backwards until he found himself in the 13th century reading about the Fourth Crusade called by Pope Innocent III to recapture Jerusalem held by Muslims. By 1860, Lee's library had grown to around 2,000 volumes. This would increase tenfold by the time he died nearly 50 years later. He continued to run the publishing company. In 1862, Blanchard and Lee purchased publishing rights to Gray's Anatomy and put out the first of 25 distinct American editions. The first five editions were edited by Richard James Dunglison, 1834 to 1901, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section N. His father, Ropley Dunglison, was physician to Thomas Jefferson and father of American physiology. I talked about him in the August edition of All Bones Considered. During the Civil War, Lee worked enthusiastically and tirelessly for the Union cause. He was, of course, a founder of the Union League in Philadelphia. He wrote thousands of pages in newspapers and pamphlets on behalf of the Union. He even received letters of thanks from President Abraham Lincoln. William Blanchard retired from the firm in 1865 after 32 years, so the publishing company simply became Lee. Henry's sons, Francis Henry Lee, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, and Arthur Henry Lee, buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, took over the company in 1880, and it became Lee Brothers, probably most famous for convincing William Osler to write his magnum opus, The Principles and Practice of Medicine, in 1892. It remained with that name until 1907, when Arthur Henry joined with Christian Febiger to form the partnership of Lee and Febiger, with its offices on the west side of Washington Square in what became known as Publishers Row. The building, constructed in 1925, has been the site of the Locks Gallery since 1990. For the last 20 years or so, Lee and Febiger has been part of the vast publishing conglomerate Walters Kluwer, under the Lippincott, Williams, and Wilkins imprint. And the final American version of Gray's Anatomy was the 30th edition, printed in 1990. As early as 1868, Henry Charles Lee took an interest in the Spanish Inquisition. 
1869, he built a new house at 2000 Walnut Street, which included at least two rooms built solely to accommodate his ever-growing library and his working space for historical research. Twelve years later, he had to expand. He added a reading room at the expense of his garden. This is where he did the bulk of his research. It was about this time that British politician Benjamin Disraeli complained, if Mr. Lee is not stopped, all the libraries of Europe will be removed to Philadelphia. It was in this added room that Lee wrote his last great works, including The History of the Inquisition of the Middle Ages in three volumes in 1888, chapters from the religious history of Spain connected with the Inquisition in 1890, and his masterwork, History of the Inquisition of Spain, in four volumes, 1906 to 1908. During the same period, he also compiled several volumes of essays incidental to the larger projects, and he began his final unfinished project, The History of Magic and Witchcraft, which was published only partly and posthumously by Arthur C. Howland in 1939. When he didn't have the references that he needed, then he couldn't purchase them, he borrowed them from European libraries, and they gladly sent them. The Bodleian Library at Oxford sent its own original manuscripts, as did libraries of the universities of Ghent, Halle, and Munich. The Royal Library of Copenhagen sent him the Moldenhauer Codex, which he copied and used extensively. In addition to his research and publishing, Lee stayed active in local and national politics, especially pushing for political reform. In the words of one historian, Henry Charles Lee became the first Mugwump. Mugwump was a Republican who bolted from the party due to the financial corruption of James Blaine. He strongly opposed the building of City Hall at the Penn Square location preferring instead that it be built at Washington Square near Independence Hall. In 1884, he and others filed a lawsuit to prevent a large slaughterhouse from being built at 30th and Spruce by the Schuylkill River. He opposed the construction of the Market Street elevated train. He fought against the Grand Boulevard from City Hall northwest to Fairmount Park, now the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. He was chosen president of the National Republican League in 1880, and he was elected president of the American Historical Society in 1903, despite having no formal training as a historian. Shortly before Lee's death, Professor Dana Carlton Monroe asked him why he didn't write his autobiography. Replied the old man, as regards an autobiography, I am like Canning's knife grinder. Story, bless you, sir, I've none to tell. I only followed my convictions and worked as they led. He was referring to a poem by George Canning, 1770 to 1827, called Friend of Humanity. Henry Charles Lee died of pneumonia at home at age 84 in October 1909. He was a very wealthy man. Despite having no formal education, he became one of the most respected historians in the world and had received numerous honorary degrees both here and abroad. And crates of documents and books continued to arrive at his Walnut Street home for several months 
after his death. He was laid to rest a few days later at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section S. Three years later, architect Frank Furness was buried just a few feet away. His tomb is one of the most impressive in the cemetery, with a 1911 Beaux-Arts bronze sculptor by Alexander Sterling Calder. It shows the muse of history, Cleo, sitting erect with an upright book on her lap. She's staring straight ahead toward the Schuylkill River. This is nine years before Sterling started on the Swan Fountain. The Art Nouveau wall behind Cleo is by architects Clarence Zanziger and Louis Borey Jr., who had just shared a commission with Horace Trumbauer for the Philadelphia Museum of Art. They also did the Washington Memorial Chapel at Valley Forge National Historical Park and the Edward Bach Singing Tower in Lake Wales, Florida. Over Cleo's right shoulder on the wall is inscribed Henry Charles Lee, historian. Over her left shoulder is a Latin phrase, Veritatem Delexi, I delight in the truth. This has also been the motto of Bryn Mawr College since 1903. And after you've looked at the Lee Monument, as you start to go up the steps to the left of the statue, look at the bottom of the book spine. You will find Calder's signature there. Where did his library go? Lee made no provision in his will, so his children had to decide. In 1888, Lee had paid for the Library Company of Philadelphia to double its capacity, so that may have been his intended choice. But while he was a trustee at the University of Pennsylvania from 1871 to 1873, he had made extensive gifts to both the library and the museum. And in 1892, he had donated the Henry C. Lee Library and Reading Room to the School of Medicine for the study of public health. The Lee children decided on Penn, but the Furnace Library, which had been dedicated in 1891 and held the university's library, had no space for the Lee Library. So the family financed a new wing for $100,000. It was completed in 1924. They also endowed the Henry Charles Lee Chair in History at Penn, as well as Chairs in History in Lee's name at Princeton and Harvard. When the Van Pelt Library was built in 1962, the Lee Professor of History, Kenneth M. Seton, was also the Director of Libraries. He saw to it that the Lee Library, paneling, bookcases, skylight, doors, fireplace, and furnishings, as well as the Furnace Shakespeare Library and other special collections, were moved to the sixth floor of the new building, where they remain today. The Lee Professor of History remains curator of the collection. Henry Charles Lee, an amateur scholar who wrote huge tomes on history that are still used and who collected one of the finest private libraries in the Western Hemisphere. Again, I will remind you of something so you can put it on your calendar when things open up again. Featured at the Laurel Hill Cemetery Museum, their legacies, the women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries. It's an exhibit that celebrates achievements of 16 women buried in Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries. 
The exhibit is just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. I have talked about several of these women in prior podcasts. When it reopens, the exhibit will be on display Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. The museum is just across from the office at the gatehouse of Laurel Hill Cemetery. The exhibit will run through the end of the year. It is free. It is open to all who are interested. But donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are always appreciated. Next time in the October edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, we're going to celebrate the centenary of the release of the American literature classic, This Side of Paradise. No F. Scott Fitzgerald is not buried in Philadelphia, but two people who influenced him deeply are Hobart Amory Hare Hobie Baker, who served as the role model for Allenby, and whose name Fitzgerald took for the lead character, Amory Blaine, is at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. And the Reverend Monsignor Sigourney W. Fay, to whom Fitzgerald dedicated the book, and who served as the role model for Monsignor Thayer Darcy, is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bala Kinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. And we are open for tours again if you're willing to wear a nose and mouth cover and stay six feet apart from everyone who is not a family member. Check out some of the upcoming tours. If you're still not ready to show up in person, we are also doing virtual tours. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. And here's something else to satisfy your curiosity. LaurelHillCemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of some of our inhabitants and activities. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around to hear my references for this show.
There is plenty of reference material on Alexander Milne Calder. Probably the best is Three Alexander Calders, a family memoir by Margaret Hayes Calder. It was published in 1977. It gave me a lot of the details. For City Hall, I recommend Philadelphia City Hall, Monument to a New Political Machine by Howard Gillette, Jr. That was in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, April 1973, volume 97, number 2, pages 233 to 249. For the Warners, I depended on newspaper and cemetery archives. There really isn't much else. Other people who have written about this monument have made three common mistakes, though. That the Calder sculptor is for William Warner Sr. and not Jr. I saw one reference that said Alexander Milne Calder was great-grandfather to the mobile artist Sandy Calder. And that the face emerging from the coffin is a child. For Alexander Sterling Calder and many other Philadelphia sculptors, I strongly recommend the coffee table book Sculpture of a City, Philadelphia's Treasures in Bronze and Stone, an anthology from many writers assembled by the Fairmount Park Association and published by Walker Publishing Company, Incorporated, New York, 1974. The essay called The Sculpture of City Hall is by George Gurney on pages 94 to 103, Swan Fountain is by Victoria Donahoe, is on pages 230 to 239. However, the whole book is excellent. Finally, Henry Charles Lee has been written about for decades. My favorites are Henry C. Lee, Scientific Historian, that's by William M. Armstrong, from the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, October 1956, volume 80, number 4, pages 465 to 477. And Henry Charles Lee and the Libraries Within a Library by Edward Peters. That's from the Penn Library Collections at 250, pages 32 to 59, published in 2004 and available for free online. Until next time, thank you. Stay safe. Stay well.